Hello and welcome to the Mason, Hayes and Curran Law podcast. My name is Stephen Gillick and this week we are delighted to be joined by Joanne Roach, Director with Pensions Actuarial Services in KPMG Ireland. Hi Stephen, how are you this afternoon? Very good, thanks Joanne. The focus of this podcast is the IORP 2 directive and more specifically the risk management requirements set out in that directive. Joanne, we're still waiting for the IORP 2 directive to be transposed into Irish law, but can you kick off perhaps by explaining the nature of the risks associated with a pension scheme that the provisions contained in the directive is seeking to guard against? Sure, Stephen, happy to. So the directive refers to a number of risks, a myriad of risks actually you could say, some of which will apply to defined benefit schemes and some which will apply to both defined benefit and defined contribution schemes. And they include things like, it includes reference to, and this will be particularly relevant for a defined benefit scheme, an equitable spread of risks and benefits between generations, which is a difficult thing to do. Um, Intergenerational equity in a defined benefit scheme is something we grapple with at all times. Um, asset liability management is another area, operational risk, liquidity and concentration risk management, um, and environmental and social and governance risks are also mentioned a number of times, which is obviously a very topical area of late. Uh, the authority have commented in the past about their view of key risks across defined benefit and defined contribution schemes. And they have mentioned, for example, with defined benefit schemes, the main risk is essentially that the beneficiary doesn't get their benefit. And actually that could apply equally to defined contribution. And some of the risks of that happening are some of the um, the potential reasons why a member wouldn't get their benefit would be around longevity risk, around, I suppose, fraud, maladministration. Um, and do we see much fraud happening in Ireland in relation to pensions? I know in the UK... There's quite a, a lot of issues in relation to advisory and the issues uh, pertaining to fraud. But in Ireland, is that a large risk? I haven't seen, we haven't seen much of it in the past. I mean, that obviously I can't comment too, in too much detail about, there's a court case at the moment, um, I think it's still live, about um, Customs House Capital directors mm-hmm. who are um, actually, um, they would have looked after PRSAs. I suppose if we look at the, Pensions Authority and what there obviously there is a focus on uh, risk, but there there doesn't seem to be many cases before the courts in relation to fraud and pension schemes that that, that I'm aware of. And, yeah. and that was an unusual case, Customs House Capital, because I, I think it related to PRSAs more so than what you maybe associate with fraud and and opportunities of fraud. Maybe a, a large DB or a large DC scheme will give. Yeah, exactly. I think it was a particular unusual case. And I mean, I suppose I suppose one of the important things, I suppose, around occupational schemes is looking at the controls around, and the authority have mentioned that as well, around tight financial controls, around access to the bank account. And, so and Joanne, one, one of the risks you, you mentioned uh, related to ESG are environmental social governance risks. Uh, obviously, this is an area that trustees of pension schemes are, are more aware of, and they're going to be steered in that direction by legislative changes uh, to be more aware of it. But what's the risk in relation to ESG? Or what, what do we think could be the risk for ESG going forward for trustees and every, anyone involved with pension schemes? 
Certainly, it's very topical. Um, and the idea behind it is that um, pension schemes being long-term investors should have an eye on risks around climate change, around aspects that could impact on long-term value. And we would have seen this at the t- heightened by the pandemic, really, where I think a lot of people stepped back and realised there are these external forces outside our control which can actually impact on our day-to-day lives and on valuations and so on. So some of the risks which would have been seen as potentially more remote in the past um, have certainly been brought to the fore. So I think trustees are expected at a minimum to have a conversation with their investment managers to understand the extent to which um, environmental and societal and governance aspects are being integrated into the investment process and to the extent they can document that and communicate it to members um, by way of the trustee annual report. Now, that being said, a lot of the detail around ESG, you know, the taxonomies, et cetera, which are, are being driven by regulation in EU, they've yet to um, materialise. So we're waiting and it's, it's an evolving area. Um, so we are waiting on further detail. I think it's 2022 now in terms of uh, detailed taxonomies. One area that I, that I was pleasantly surprised about, and I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, I think, was and, and this relates to the whole area of risk in ESG is how resilient ESG investments actually were during the pandemic because one of my crystal ball predictions last March was that we'd see a flight away from ESG and uh, trustees going to what would be perceived as more safe harbor uh, safe harbor investments such mm. as uh, traditional stocks but ESG it's proved to be quite resilient uh, during the whole pandemic. Yeah, for sure. And I think some of that will be driven by supply and demand or, or in other words, the demand really for ESG. You've seen some really big players now um, piling into the ESG space. And it, so the so the money is going there and it's driving up prices. Um, also, there's some views that, you know, peak oil has passed. I think I read recently the chief economist of BP actually came out and said that uh, we've seen peak oil, you know, and um, during the pandemic, obviously, oil stocks didn't do very well but relatively speaking ESG stocks did so yeah so it's kind of on an upward trajectory for sure and um, a cold Irish winter could drive uh, oil stocks through the roof so uh, we'll have to keep an eye on that they moved the discussion just forward by asking just a a practical question and what steps can, can trustees take when, when they're looking at risks and they're looking at implementing a, a formal risk framework? Okay, good question. Well, if I was to step back and think about, first of all, maybe trustees in terms of moving forward with addressing the IORP2 requirements, I think a first step, useful first step would be to look at a gap analysis between what their current practices are and what IORP2 expects, both in terms of risk management and governance aspects, because there is a lot of overlap between the two. I mean, if you fall down on governance, you're going to have heightened risks. Um, now, I think you'll probably find if you do that gap analysis, of some, as some schemes have, you'll end up with a laundry list of activities to go and tackle. So there will be a requirement to try and ascribe a level of prioritisation to the list. Um, and I suppose you'd probably, that begs the question, how do you go about doing that? Um, and I think maybe... A good place to start is some of the quick wins anyway. I mean, there's areas that have been mentioned by the authority as being priority areas. Um, for example, sensible KPIs, uh, service level agreements with your administrator. They're likely to be something that are in place anyway, but you could look to enhance those or 
you know, get them um, fit for purpose in terms of IORP2. Looking again, they mentioned tight financial controls and I'd mentioned controls around the bank account and then a good risk management function. So I suppose then coming on to the risk management function itself, I think we can learn a lot from, and this has been well discussed already, the insurance world um, around this three lines of defence model where you look to, to set up you know, clear delineation of responsibility between the doers, which would be the likes of the, the scheme actuary and your delegated risk function. The checkers being your, maybe a trustee risk committee, the also risk analysis that's performed. And then line three being the review line, which is internal audit and external audit. And the framework really needs to, I mean, essentially any risk management framework is around identifying, evaluating and planning for what to do about the risks. I mean, it's all well and good to identify a big laundry list of risks, but actually prioritizing them in a sensible way and planning for what to do about them is is key. Mm. And can I ask you one, on the tree line of defense model, the do check uh, uh, and the deterred internal audit, uh, external audit, are you seeing in in the actuarial sphere, the actuaries getting more involved in the, the space one, the kind of do aspect of the check. Is that something that the Society of Actuaries of Ireland are, are are looking at or is that something that actuaries are seeing more involvement in? Yeah, for sure. So um, I suppose I'll be speaking with a few hats on here, Stephen. I'm a member of the Pension Committee of the Society of Actuaries. Um, so as part of that, I've seen that, yeah, there's very much an interest in positioning actuaries as a really good contributors to the risk discussions, whether that's defined contribution or more particularly defined benefit because we have a unique skill set in terms of looking at the quants, look understanding the asset liability modeling, and uh, neither of them on their own is um it's it's looking at the extent to which they may be mismatched or so on. So absolutely the scheme a scheme actually would look to be or an actuary, not necessarily the scheme actuary, I suppose an actuary is um very well placed. I would argue, though, wearing my other hat, which is the KPMG hat or an independent, that rather than the scheme actuary, an independent external actuary, I think IORP2 presents a really good opportunity to bring in an independent actuary who hasn't been involved. Like you'll often find, Stephen, as you'll be aware, the scheme actuary will sit in the same house as the, the administrator and potentially the investment consultant. So a lot of the activities around the scheme are done under one roof currently. And I think for that independence and a really rigorous, I suppose, challenge and alternative perspective, an independent actuary would be um, would be ideal in the role. Yeah. And is, is that something that's uh, peculiar to the Irish market? I wonder that, that there's often individuals or the companies wearing the same hat. In the UK, I don't think that happens on a regular basis. And maybe that's just a creature a function of the size of the market in the UK and the fact that pensions expertise uh, be it actuarial legal and financial or otherwise is really uh, in a limited amount of individuals and limited amount of entities in, in our 
Yeah, no, we have a very peculiar market, Stephen. It is, um, I suppose, as you say, because of the size, we have you've a, a very small handful of advisors that, um, I mean, you've three of the big name consultancies who advise. I mean, I think they take in something like 90% of the revenue and they'll have various relationships then across the industry. And then there's there's a handful of sort of independents then that make up the last 10%. So by contrast, in the UK, they have there would be a scheme actuary in place who advises the trustees and there would be a separate actuary in place advising the company. They're required to sit down and formally negotiate. So you do get that um, that sort of challenge and you get alternative perspectives, whereas oftentimes in Ireland, there isn't those, there isn't a separate um, corporate actuary or if there is, it may well be done by the same maybe performed by the same consultancy house. So I'm not convinced there would be the same degree of challenge there because there is that risk of groupthink and you're not actually bringing in an alternative perspective to challenge back. Like one example I can think of, Steve, and maybe just to bring it to life is, uh, you know, a lot of the industry would talk about yield reversion. Uh, So a lot of the funding plans are predicated on the assumption that yields will rise from the levels they're currently at and, and rise quite materially and and you know that that keeps funding at a at modest levels or at more modest levels than otherwise but whether that is a realistic assumption and actually for someone to come in and challenge back um because you can convince yourself i suppose the longer you're practicing something as in any industry that that's that's the right answer because everyone else is doing it but i think um a level of challenge on some of the basic assumptions that the industry has made, which has it has made over the course of a decade now, and that that yield reversion hasn't obviously materialised and is looking continuously um, unlikely as we're into this quantitative easing mm-hmm. post COVID. Yeah, and can, can I steer the discussion uh, slightly towards uh, IORP two again? Uh, one one of the kind of peculiar, well, not peculiar, but novel and new aspects of IOP two is the is the concept of an own risk assessment, and that the completion of one is is one of the the, the key features in the IOP two. So, can mm-hmm. I ask you to to help explain to to listeners what is an own risk assessment, and what would it involve to complete one? Well, we're we're waiting guidance from the authority in terms of the own risk assessment, but it it largely is intended to, to do as 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 it says on the tin. It's to be a very scheme specific assessment of risks, um, but it should be proportionate to the size and nature and scale. So again, you will probably get um, quite a different looking own risk assessment for a defined benefit scheme and a defined contribution scheme, just by virtue of the fact that the risks are different across the two. It does need to address the wide variety of risks which uh, impact on both. So it'll talk in qualitative terms about risks which cannot be quantified. And then it will attempt to quantify by way of scenario testing, stresses, etc., the various risks that a defined benefit scheme will be subject to. Now, in practice, the own risk assessment, it may include standard tests that the Pensions Authority prescribe or for larger schemes or those with more risks potentially or more unusual schemes, there may be an additional layer of tests that they do to make it to do the own part of the risk assessment that they make. They look for scheme specific tests. It Not definitely sounds like trustees won't be able to 
to sit down and uh, and get cracking on this on their own that they'll certainly need professional advice to, to tackle this and to complete an own risk and effect assessment effectively and in line with the IORC 2 directive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is a very, certainly um, at, at outset, because there will be a level of effort and resource required uh, initially. I think as years go on, as the year, as time progresses, it's required every three years. Um, and that's something that's seen in the insurance industry is keeping it fresh is a challenge. Um, it could be an advantage or a disadvantage. There's probably less work as time goes on once you've done yeah. the initial thinking, taken the advice. So, Joanne, what are the consequences here for trustees of, of getting this wrong and this being the whole risk management of the scheme and failing to take any action uh, on foot of the the IORP two requirements that are literally around the corner? What what can happen to a trustee, or, or what are the consequences here? Okay, well, I guess because it's not been transposed into law, there aren't legal consequences as such. There isn't um, a law that they can. Um, you know, be held accountable against. But that being said, it has definitely raised the bar because of the, the, the directive is actually out there. It has raised the bar in terms of governance and risk management. You know, th- there'll certainly be an additional workload and time commitment because of it. I suppose they don't want to fall. You, if you're a trustee, you probably don't want to fall behind your peers to the extent, as I say, the bar is being raised on it. I think, though, the main message I'd have, I think there'd be an opportunity missed if trustees didn't use it as an opportunity to like there will be a cost to the risk management role, but actually to get some benefit from that additional uh, risk management to actually bring in an independent at the table to ask some of the sometimes there are the naughty questions, but the more difficult questions of the in situ actuary of the in situ advisors around, as I mentioned, things like yield aversion, things like charges, really looking under the bonnet at the, the, the charges, um, looking at all the processes, the admin processes and so on, and are they as streamlined and are they as slick or is there potential room for, is your particular scheme you know, administered in a different way that there's a potential risk there? So I think the benefits of IOP2 are there. Should trustees implement it in a way that makes sense for their own scheme. Which, which kind of leads me nicely and onto my next question. Uh, I suppose trustees and employers that, that I've spoken to uh, over the last couple of years uh, since I up to uh, was mooted and as, as being uh, around the corner. It's been around the corner for a long time. I think their main concern is that the risk management requirements and the other requirements of the directive will add costs to the schemes and this will in effect reduce members benefits so can the risk management process be be cost effective in light of this and and how can it be achieved yeah i think that's a great question Stephen, and it's something right across the industry we're all collectively grappling with um so I think, as we talked earlier, I think it'll depend on the scheme. In some cases, like your large DB schemes, your semi-states or PLCs, there will be a requirement for, for more risk management and cost isn't as much of a concern. Whereas smaller defined contribution schemes, which are paying quite low fees currently, this would represent a massive step change for them. And is it actually sensible? Is it fit for purpose? Is it value adding? Um, I think... We need to be clear on the aspects that may be value adding and the aspects which are just additional grind, really, and additional paperwork. Looking at the captive insurance market, they would look at the suite of documentation that's required and they would try as far as possible to 
centralise that and make minimal changes then on a case by case basis. So I think the same sort of thinking can apply to defined contribution schemes where, for example, all the defined contribution schemes being run by a given provider adhere to the same processes and those processes are reviewed once. Or, for example, the vast majority of members' investments end up in the default fund. So the default fund is reviewed once and that review and the risk assessment around the default, around the admin processes is done once and is rolled out numerous times. Yeah, yeah, that seems like a great suggestion and one that certainly could keep costs in line. The pensions regulator has previously stated, Joanne, that the trustees need to show a greater awareness of risk concepts, risk management and, and risk in general. And that combined with his view that an optional risk management framework simply wouldn't work leads many in the industry to believe that we're likely to see the authority adopt a more proactive approach to risk management in the future. Would you anticipate more activity from the pensions authority in the area of risk management in the months and years ahead? Yeah, Stephen, I mean, that would seem to be the direction of travel, albeit progress has been slow to date. I mean, the IRP2 was due to be transposed back in January 2019. Uh, So we're going on for two years. But certainly the authority has been speaking about risk management on numerous occasions, and it's certainly very much on their radar They are moving towards a forward-looking risk-based approach. They are looking to categorise schemes right at this moment in time into categories one, two, and three, and they will be looking to prioritise their activities across which category a particular scheme falls into. Scheme three being the ones, category three being the ones where they believe that actually there's a high risk that members won't get paid their benefits. Category two being those that are not quite there in terms of risk management. There's there's improvements required and they're going to be engaging with those schemes as well. And they have said actually that the vast majority of schemes will probably fall into category two, even those that believe they're already doing things very, very well. And then category one who are, who are sort of top of the class. So um, definitely expect to hear more on risk management side. Okay, watch this space and certainly we'll be seeing uh, the Pensions Authority ramp it up uh, in the the next months and years ahead. Well, Joanne, that's all the time we have for today, but thanks so much for joining us to chat about risk management and IRP2. For more events and podcasts, you can visit www.mhc.ie.